Hallelujah. Father God, we thank you that in this time of worship, we have eternal truths and blessings to celebrate this day. We thank you that even from ancient times in your scriptures, the salvation that belongs to you, which was celebrated and proclaimed of old, is still, Lord Jesus, the ringing desire, the celebrated truth, and the passion of those whom you have set apart by your covenant shed blood to bind them to yourself in sweet communion through the salvation of their souls, through Jesus Christ, your Son, sent as our sacrifice. We declare, Lord, that these things are true this day because of your mighty work, stepping into history, ransoming for yourself a people. We worship you this day because our Lord did not stay on that cross, but is raised from the dead and has received the kingdom from his Father and is proceeding to reign until such time as every enemy is captive under his feet. And the full consummation of his kingdom is ours to enjoy with all the saints who have gone before and will come after, singing to you, Worthy is the Lamb. As we turn now to your scriptures, I pray that the contours, the beauty, the depth, and the history of our great salvation would be impressed deep into our soul so that it might work its way out in fruitful obedience, in passionate faith, in committed footsteps towards that which you have laid beforehand for us to walk in. Thank you for this day that you have made. We rejoice and are glad in it. Open our hearts now by the power of your Spirit to receive your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God for the privilege and the glorious opportunity to consider together His timeless truth in His holy scriptures. Turn with me in your scriptures, if you would, to Jonah chapter 1. And today marks the beginning of a series for us. We will consider the book of Jonah in several messages, and Lord willing, follow with the book of Nahum. Both of these books are minor prophets, and both are addressed to a wayward people. They contain the word of God for a people represented by Nineveh, a pagan city, which we'll find in the course of our study, bared all the marks of codified sin, sinning professionally, if you will, organizing themselves not around the one true God, not even casting any uh, excuse or any even nod his direction, but instead engaging in complete corruption. And so in this test case, we see the gospel going forth and its power to save in spite of these kind of conditions. And so for us, Jonah becomes extremely encouraging. And my hope is that our faith would be built today and in our series to believe that God can save anyone, anywhere. It is up to Him and it is His power to do so that is exhibited in all throughout the Scriptures and will be exhibited in our time as well. The aim of this morning's message is that the timeless relevance of Jonah's writings would prepare us for the intensity of the gospel call. That the relevance of what Jonah has written down, recorded, of his own example and of the Lord's word to him, that this relevance would prepare us, or the application of these truths would prepare us for the intensity of our own gospel call. The title of this morning's message is Wake Up Call. 
It's a wake-up call. The title is borrowed from the beginning of the story in Jonah where Jonah himself is in a stupefying sleep, running from the presence of the Lord, as it were, and God wakes him up in a storm. With that introduction, would you stand, if you're able with me, with your Bible open to Jonah chapter 1, and let us behold the Word of God together. This is the immortal Word of Christ. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, uh, uh, the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up to me." But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up, and the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God that will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Jonah's Old Testament book is cataloged with the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. Are you impressed? That came from a song when I was in kindergarten. So Jonah's Old Testament book is cataloged with all of these who have followed the major prophets, as it were, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah and Jeremiah have lengthy treaties in the scriptures. Their books are quite lengthy and long. In the case of Isaiah, as I recall, his ministry spanned a great breadth as well. Geographically, he prophesied to both the northern and the southern kingdom. But as sort of a subset of their work in ministry, we have the minor prophets, men who followed in their stead, who in the same pattern heard from the word of the Lord and prophesied to the people. It's been said the difference between a prophet and a priest is a priest uh, speaks to God on behalf of the people. They enter into the presence of God representing the people and plead their case on their behalf. Whereas a prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. They spend time in his presence as it were, hearing the word of God and then proclaiming it to the masses, to those whom God has called them to reach. This was certainly the role of Jonah. In spite of his uh, in spite of his sketchy track record and being obedient to this call, we find even with the testimony of greater scripture that he was a prophet specifically to the northern kingdom, at least ordinarily so. But now we see an exception as God calls him to reach a pagan kingdom. His, that is, Jonah's account is of a condensed, is, a, is condensed and dramatic in its proportions. It's full of surprising twists and it foreshadows many gospel realities. And you'll remember, even in the course of our Matthew study, I believe chapter 12, Jesus himself uses Jonah as a type 
to help the hearers understand the nature of his own work and ministry. He says, paraphrasing, just as Jonah excuse me, was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will demonstrate similar power as he defeats the grave. The theme central to these four chapters, the four chapters of Jonah's book, I think may well be described by the final phrase uttered by Jonah himself after he is delivered from that great fish. Turn over quickly to chapter 2. Jonah, first of all, describes his plight. He says, I called out to the Lord, verse 1, out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol. This descriptive language, uh, describe, he, he is painting this picture of death, the place of the death, certain doom, the belly of this fish, Sheol, a certain death, destruction, judgment. So out of this place he cries, and it says, you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Listen, this personal pronoun, all your waves, possessive pronoun, indicating that the waves are owned, directed, commissioned by the Lord. Your waves and your billows passed over me. As Jonah has described his plight, he goes on in his worship song, and then he closes with these words in verse 9 finally, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. And note these five words, salvation belongs to the Lord. A suitable theme for the book of Jonah right there, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't matter if the people who need salvation in question are the Ninevites, and it is counterintuitive for you, how can our Hebraic culture and how can the message of salvation through the great father Abraham apply to them? Well, the answer is salvation is not of Abraham. Salvation is not of the Hebrews. Salvation is not even for only them. Salvation is of the Lord. Therefore, it's for the Ninevites. It's for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. It's for the Greek, the Scythian, the barbarian, the slave, the free. Salvation is for all because salvation is of the Lord. And it is His sovereign doing. We find that Jonah needed salvation as well. And so he sung these words recognizing his personal testimony to the sovereign intervention of God, resurrecting him from the belly of Sheol, the place of death. So the theme of Jonah, salvation, belongs to the Lord. Jonah was called to bring this message to the capital of Assyria, namely Nineveh. He would bring it initially with a proclamation of deserved judgment for sin. You wicked sinners, you will soon die. However, implicit in his message was a condition upon repentance. That is to say, if you repent from your sin and turn to the one true God, you may not die. Jonah was a little dubious about this message. He wasn't interested in the salvation of the Assyrians, hence his rebellion. Jonah despised and rejected this mission and consequently learned a thing or two himself. Among these, salvation belongs to the Lord. Nineveh was about 550 miles northeast of where Jonah's home country was. He was stationed near the south end of the Sea of Galilee. If you imagine a map of the Middle East in your head, you know about the center of Israel or so, that's where Jonah resided. But think to the northeast, we have that great uh, landmass in comparison of Iraq. And then up in the northern section of Iraq, right across the Tigris River from Mosul, modern Mosul, are the ruins, even today you can visit, of Nineveh. That's where Nineveh was located, about 550 miles northeast of Jonah's home country. 
And so as the prophet to the north as a prophet to the northern kingdom uh, before the Assyrians invaded, because you might remember that it was the Ninevites um, as representing the nation of Assyria that would actually be the undoing of the northern tribes. It wasn't but a few decades, and because of their unfaithfulness and sin, judgment would come upon the northern tribes of Israel and they would be invaded. But this knowledge of this contentious, warring tribe or of people, this warring nation to their northeastern border, it was alive and well in the consciousness of the people. There was no love lost for the Assyrian kingdom among the Jews at this time. Jonah would have been familiar with this imposing kingdom. After all, rumors of it had boasted a capital city 60 miles in circuit. Uh, These were rumors at the time. A hundred foot walls, 33 yards in breadth, accommodating a three wide chariot or three wide, triple wide chariot traffic on the top of these walls, and these walls then interrupted every so often by 200 foot towers. This was a city, the historians tell us of the time, without historical rival, built in eight years by 1.4 million men. This was the word on the street, anyway, that Jonah, no doubt, would have been familiar with in part. In addition to this reputation, the terrifying renown of this Syrian war machine was a constant fear for all surrounding nations, including Israel, where Jonah first heard the message, the instructions to travel there with a mandate from the one true God. The Assyrians, some have said, were the inventors of terror. They had finally tuned the craft of war to strike utter paralyzing fear in the hearts of their enemies. Sometimes nations would bow the knee just upon word of their exploits, defeating their enemies in battle and doing horrific, undescribable things by way of torture, whole-scale, genocide, murder, and so on. This was the reputation, the renown of the Assyrian kingdom. And so a little bit of historical context to set the backdrop for the call of Jonah to go to this people and to bring them the word of the Lord. So you might imagine in light of this context, how that would strike Jonah, both as a surprise and a horrifying thought. Let me give you three introductory features that we find in the first six verses of Jonah. First of all, the word of the Lord is featured in the text. It's a structural element to the book, as it is all the prophets indeed. Secondly, the weakness of Jonah is featured. And thirdly, the waters of correction. You could say waters of judgment, but let's call them waters of correction, as Jonah himself was a believer, needed chastisement from the Lord, and the Lord used this storm to do so. First of all, the word of the Lord. This is an introductory feature Notice in Jonah 1.1, reading again, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, um, or Amittai, excuse me, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Amittai and Jonah are also referenced in 2 Kings. We'll touch on the cross-reference later. Amittai meaning truth. His son's name, Jonah, meaning dove or something of, of the kind. So Jonah, the son of Amittai, hears the word of the Lord saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. One of the great burdens of being a prophet was, in fact, receiving the word of the Lord. If you're an agent, God's mouthpiece, 
to speak on his behalf with his authority. When the word of the Lord came, so did your marching orders and instructions, and there was no arguing with the dictate, with the directive. This was serious stuff. God does not issue, God does not proclaim, he does not reveal his word just to have it fall on deaf ears without judgment. Every word that God proclaims is precious and pointed. It is prepared in advance by his sovereignty to be an absolutely essential truth upon which the future of its hearer hinges. The word of the Lord, when it is spoken, ought to be received with fear and trembling. This was Jonah's problem at the time. He did not fear and tremble when he received the word of the Lord. Instead, he tried to run from the presence of the one who controls every square inch of this world, let alone the cosmos, let alone this world. He tried to run from the authority of the one who held his next breath in his hand. And we quickly see the futility of such an endeavor. Later in the text, however, contrasting to uh, Jonah's dubious reception of the word of God, not taking it seriously, we find on the other side of the coin that an entire pagan society heard the word of the Lord and understood its authority and acted accordingly by humbling themselves before the Lord. Because Jonah did not do this, he found himself in a bad place indeed. However, when Jonah gets around to recording his experience with the Lord, he, is, uh, he takes great pains to feature the centrality of the word of the Lord by introducing his prophecy, this book, recording these events with the concept of God's word. Now when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of, uh, again, Amittai, I'll get that right eventually, Amittai, um, and so on and so forth, we hear the instructions to rise and go to Nineveh. Again, as a structural element in the text, we turn over to Jonah chapter 3, and after he has had this fish incident, the fish has spewed him up on dry land, We see a second time, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. And you see now that his response is consistent with the authority of God's word. At the close of the book, when Jonah proceeds to argue with the Lord as disgruntled at what God has actually done to save this people, Again, the book closes with Jonah extolling the word of the Lord. And God has the last words when he says, Should I not pity Nineveh? Verse 11, chapter 4. The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. The structure of the book of Jonah begins with the word of the Lord and then everything that proceeds is marked in reference to it. Judgment when God's word is broken and mercy when God's word is heeded. This, in fact, is the structure of the entire scripture, not just the book of Jonah. In Genesis 1.1, you recall, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and God said. We have the word of the Lord at the very beginning of the Bible itself with the authority of God demonstrated in speaking light 
creatures, plants, water, land, the earth itself into existence. Yet as the book continues, the record, what do we see? We see mercy, we see grace with respect to obedience to His Word, but judgment with respect to falling short. Very quickly, man does not take the Word of the Lord seriously. And so Adam and Eve move from their status of taking dominion over creation to being slaves of creation. Why? Because God's Word, which came to them with instructions, you may eat of any tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did not heed. Because they disobeyed, sin entered into the heart of man and consequently judgment. So this is the structure of the Bible itself. It's interesting, in the New Covenant, as John opens up his gospel, we won't turn there, but you'll recall, what do we have in the very beginning of his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, John tells us. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And at this point, we see that the book unfolds with the proclamation of God's Word, not just recorded or spoken orally, but instead incarnate, further still, incarnate in His Son. And so now, as we have studied in the book of Matthew, for, for instance, everyone who encounters the Word of Christ incarnate in the Son will either receive mercy as they acknowledge His authority to deliver His Holy Word, or they will be judged at His judgment seat because they did not take seriously the Word of the Lord. And so from creation to Christ... And all through the record in between, including the prophets, the word of the Lord is a structural element. In Jonah, in fact, there is a foreshadowing of the ultimate remedy. The ultimate remedy for Jonah and for Nineveh was heeding the authority of the word of the Lord. And of course, the ultimate remedy is pictured in Christ, heeding the authority of the word incarnate, not a mere prophet in the case of Christ but prophet, priest, and king, the Word which became flesh, the incarnation of the Word Himself in John 1.1. A prophet like Jonah will arise, but he will so far surpass him, it tries the imagination to see the record of his authority and work in this world. Like Jonah, he will demonstrate the power of God and his own power indeed in rising from the dead. Like Jonah, he will begin his ministry, not just hearing the word, but in, but in fact proclaiming as the word the message of the kingdom. And so this is an introductory feature in the book of Jonah. His word has come, as we have mentioned, not just to Jonah, not just recorded at the beginning of the Bible, not just incarnate in Christ, but this is a pattern throughout all of the prophets. A pattern demonstrating, in fact, <clears throat> the continuity of Scripture. Scripture is the proclaimed word of the Lord. God raises up prophets at times and places of His particular choosing to declare the redemptive theme that is true all through history. But the revelation of that truth unfolds one prophet at a time, as it were. And so we see in Exodus 3 and 4, that there was a prophet who himself had weaknesses, in, the case, in this case Moses, whose ability to speak didn't seem to match up in his mind to the seriousness of the call. But God used this one-time timid deliverer to lead 
a million strong out of slavery into the promised land. Isaiah, another one of the prophets, we mentioned the majors before, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah was a man of unclean lips, self-described, in Isaiah 6, 1 through 9. But he hears the word of the Lord, and this word touches him, even as it touched Moses, to give him boldness and anointing, equipping for the purposes for which God had prepared him for. So it happened with Isaiah, and a tongue from the altar is taken by the seraph and touches his lips, and he is rendered clean by the power of God. He hears the word to go and to proclaim to a people of unclean lips, repent for the word of the Lord is come through his prophet, Isaiah. And finally, Jeremiah, the word of the Lord was featured in his life as well. From the beginning, as a young man, he thought his disqualification would have been his youth. God, however, qualified him, not by his own merits, but by the word that he gave him to proclaim. Let no one say that you are just a boy, an unqualified youth, is the idea there, because you bear not your own authority, not your own ability, but you are a messenger, an ambassador. Paul would say a doulos, a slave, carrying with you a message, as it were, a scroll sealed with a stamp of, authentic, of authenticity from heaven. These are the directives. These are the dictates of the sovereign God for you and for your people. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah in our text today, illustrating that Jonah is not the hero. It's interesting, Jonah, uh, most all uh, scholar, believing scholars believe, is the author of the book. But Jonah, will notice a little later, too, writes in the third person. But also, it is clear that he is not the hero of the story. At the end, we don't even know what happens to him. There is no celebration of Jonah. Uh, there is no statue in his honor that is erected in the plaza of Nineveh. There is no lineage where... Um, it's seen even if he has a son to pass on his, you know, uh, his great legacy to, to you know, create this, uh, this organization in Nineveh to carry on the Jonah legacy. There's nothing like that. All we have is a record of a frail, fickle, moody, uh, disillusioned prophet who reluctantly obeyed the Lord and the Lord used in mighty ways. The Word of God the word of the Lord is the true hero of the story. That is the aspect of the story that does not wither or fail, that never returns void and does not change. Jonah's wither and fail. Prophets of old, mere human prophets, return void sometimes. They were disobedient and unfaithful. They had their own sins and faults. There is only one prophet who was an exception to this, and he was the sinless lamb. Jesus Christ. All prophets who went before were just a shadowy type looking forward to the fulfillment in Christ. And so Jonah bore the words of Christ as a reluctant vessel, evidencing that the word of God is the true hero, the true character, protagonist, if you will, of the story. Thus explaining the two-part structure of the book, its, open and its, its opening and its closing acts. So that is an introductory feature of the book of Jonah. Application is obvious and apparent for us today. Are there things that we lean on or place trust in or fancy ourselves the ability to accomplish independent of the Word of God or even to supplement it? 
Do we consider the org- some organization, some strategy, some formula to contain within it, at least in part, the power to change hearts and minds? I heard an explanation for ballet in the middle of a church service uh, this week where a pastor was saying that it's important for the church to tap into the arts because arts speak the language of the soul in a way that grabs you when proposition is otherwise argued with. Like if you make a movie about the gospel, someone may sit all the way through it, but they ain't going to sit all the way through your boring, long-winded, <coughs> wordy pastor sermon, or a wordy sermon pastor, especially with errors like that. <laughs> so this is the message that is spoken today, that the power does not necessarily only reside in the Word of God, but in its prophet, in its bearer, in its uh, you know, program and, and, and uh, fancy formula and so on. And such is not the case. You might see some kind of changes take place as a result of these other things. But they aren't the kind of changes that produce lasting fruit and actually spark new life in the soul. God has reserved the power to awaken the dead heart unto newness of life to the proclamation of His unadulterated gospel. And yes, He is pleased to use even today the foolishness of preaching to accomplish this very thing. And the church minimizes the importance of these things to her own peril and to the peril and to the peril of the Nineveh she lives in. And Jonah didn't go to Nineveh with a policy uh, so of, of free trade or with an in, with a convincing uh, battle with the rhetoricians of the day or with a battle of wits or uh, he didn't pick a fight with the chariot racers and prove his athletic prowess and then begin to say after earning their acclaim and respect, you know, speaking of the God of the universe, let me tell you a few things. Jonah went with a bad attitude and declared the word of God. And people didn't say, he's not a very nice man. He clearly doesn't want to be here, so I'm not going to listen to what he says. No, when people heard the word of Christ from this cantankerous prophet, they threw on sackcloth and ashes and repented for their sin. Why? Because the Word of God is the hero, the change agent, the power to transform the human soul. Another message from Jonah, the Word of the Lord is the featured element. Secondly, the weakness of Jonah is also featured right away. This is interesting. Jonah is sort of like a third-person autobiography. Jonah is writing about himself in the third person. Why is this the case? Arise, go to Nineveh, was the word that he was given in verse 2. In verse 3, it says, But Jonah, again, writing about himself, presumably in the third person, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So in this third person autobiography, Jonah assumes the position of the transcendent or a narrator. He steps, as it were, in the way he records this book outside of himself, and then he analyzes himself objectively in light of Scripture. And God's grace gives him the ability to do so. Jonah doesn't uh, spin the story so he looks good. Instead, he steps out of himself, as it were, in writing under the Spirit of the Lord this account and, and shows what an idiot he was. He shows what a frail individual, what a sinner in need of salvation he himself was, not just the Ninevites. 
immediately after receiving the word of God himself, sovereignly dictated from the throne of glory, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. <laughs> he immediately records his own sin, running for his life, escaping his call. What, were, could, what could have been the compounding reasons for this reactionary impulse? Well, in 2 Kings, the only other historical cross-reference where it talks a little bit about the history of Jonah, we see a little bit, just a glimpse behind the scenes of some of what this prophet may have had to deal with during the course of his ministry. 2 Kings 14, 25 and 26. He, this is speaking of Jeroboam II, one of the kings of the northern tribes. He restored the border of Israel from Labohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from uh, Gathifer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So what we see here is that the word of the Lord had been spoken by the prophet Jonah to the northern tribes. He was a prophet of Israel. But as you back up and move forward from the context of those phrases, what you find is a people that were obstinate and rebellious. That is to say, Jonah spoke things that came to pass, but Jonah did not often have ready hearers. Jonah was likely not popular in his home country. Prophets seldom are. Jesus himself said that oftentimes they're welcomed everywhere else except their homeland, which is where they're called most often to minister. So as Jonah is preaching the word, and it seems to fall on dead and deaf ears, you can imagine what his thoughts were when God says, hey, I need you to take a brief detour and take a similar message 550 miles way up to this pagan people, the greatest of all modern cities, boasting the most formidable war machine in all the ancient world, and tell them, repent or they're going to die. Well, if northern Israel hadn't listened to Jonah, and if he's not exactly the most popular guy and not invited to all the parties, what will they think in Nineveh? You can see how he must have processed the reality of this situation and the risk that he felt that he was taking. Certain death, he thought. Well, there's two different ways you can die. I can take my chances running from the presence, which means avoiding the undeniable call. You know, getting hightailing it out of Zion so I no longer am right there where I'm called to minister. I'm just going to leave my post and escape and run away. I'll take my chances doing that. Maybe I'll die doing it. But it's better than, you know, having my lips torn apart and my head ripped off and whatever else the Assyrians might want to do to me. And so you can kind of see the justification in Jonah's mind that might have led to this fearful impulse to rise and flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah displays all his weakness and sin and all of its gory detail. He portrays himself exactly as he was, a coward running from the presence of God, because in that moment he had lost faith that God was sovereign over Nineveh, because perhaps he doubted that God was evidencing his sovereignty even in his own nation of Israel. 
And so the weakness of Jonah is seen in his retreat. This retreat is toward Tarshish. Tarshish, as far as we know, was a port city straight west. So as you recall, he's here in Israel. He's called 550 miles northeast to go to the northern Iraq, to Nineveh. But instead he goes to Joppa, the only port city in his land, and takes a course uh, towards Tarshish, 2,500 miles all the way to the southern tip of Spain. So this guy is really getting, attempting to get out of Dodge. This is the impulsive retreat. Tarshish is some 2,500 miles away. And Calvin, as he considers the conch, what might be running through the mind of Jonah, he identifies three, perhaps, motivating factors. He says, I hence think that Jonah disobeyed the command of God, partly because of the weakness of the flesh was a hindrance, partly because the novelty of the message, you know, he's going to a nation that has never even heard, uh, presumably, of the God of the Israelites before. It's been entirely new to them. And partly because he despaired of fruit or of success to his teaching. He so hated the Ninevites, he didn't want God to show them any favor. So he was afraid if they encountered the word of God, that God might, and if they repented, God may have mercy on them. And, well, that's not exactly a godly desire. Nevertheless, these were the weaknesses of Jonah that seemed to be featured in the text. Can we relate to this today? Think of the average American who in one poll, in one opinion poll might confess, oh, I'm a Christian, yeah, absolutely. And the next opinion poll might tell you what they'd like to do to anyone from ISIS. This is a really interesting application because ISIS, up until recently, controlled the area of Nineveh, in fact, Mosul. And Mosul has been uh, on again, off again, conflict with ISIS. This aggressive, you know, uh, military, imperialist, uh, you know, uh, religious, holy war ordered type of people who have been known to grace our news uh, with these abhorrent acts of cruelty and torture. Well, if you ask the average American what they think, they'll likely want to unleash holy heck or whatever words they would use to describe it on them. The impulse of the average person in this nation is more likely to be, let's gather the strength of our war machine and go on a mission there, let's turn the place into glass, which is a euphemism for nuclear war. That is very popular when people are frustrated by what they see in the news. Recently, I met a man who is an exception to this rule. You can pray for him. His name is Matt Nagel. Matt's 32 years old. He has five children. I just happened to meet him by God's providence in our pastor's group. He just sold his house. His family just sold their house in Kentucky, and they're getting ready to move to Turkey. Turkey itself has a growing Islamic influence in the government and the society there. And they're looking to plant a little Reformed Baptist church there, and they're hoping to recruit enough indigenous Turkish men to be leaders of that church so it is self-sustaining before they get kicked out. Because if things continue on their current trajectory, there's a limited window of opportunity where there will be, it will be possible for Westerners to be there, especially preaching the gospel. So let me ask you this. All of the foreign policy that we muster to bring troops and special forces into that region Versus this one, young man, 
who has put his house for sale and is now raising support to go over there to bring the gospel? Which will prove more effective? Which will God be more pleased to use in the long run if the pattern of Jonah's gospel, as it were, is any measure? Well, God is pleased to use sometimes the one individual who is faithful to go with the message of the kingdom. It is not, you know, it's not my place to say that there is never room for military retaliation when a person's livelihood is threatened. There is certainly legitimate use of the sword in Scripture. And I'm not going to make the case one way or the other whether the existence of ISIS justifies the use of the American sword. What I am speaking to this morning is a condition of the average American's heart for every kind of lost person. Like I said, the Ninevites, Ninevites invented terror. You know, the activities of ISIS would be not lost on them. They would recognize them immediately. But Jonah was one lone prophet called to bring them the message of true repentance and hope. You can never ultimately conquer a people with a mere physical sword alone. People are conquered by the two-edged sword of the Word of God wielded in the un otherwise unarmed missionary's hand. The missionary goes with the most powerful weapon in all of history. Again, the same missionary might be called to defend himself and his family. I'm not speaking to that right now. What I am, again, trying to emphasize is a heart that God would have for us to lay down our lives, if necessary, to reach the furthest reaches of the wicked and rebellious world with the true conquering uh, power of the sword of the Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. Would we retreat from such a call? Would we run 2,500 miles in the opposite direction? Or would we say, yes, Lord, or would we raise support for one like my friend I met recently who feels that tug against all arguments to the contrary and against all odds to bring the cross of Christ to those who need it most? Finally, the weakness of Jonah illustrated in his impulsive retreat is also illustrated in his sleep. Now, this is interesting. Jonah had gone down, it says in verse 5, the second part of the verse, into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Uh, that is a really interesting place to be in the midst of a storm that threatens to tear the ship apart. What could be the cause for this? Well, there are likely many complicating factors in Jonah's soul that led to this kind of retreat. Jonah was not only running away by, as measured by miles on this boat to try to get 2,500, you know, try to put 2,500 miles between him and the call of God. But he was also running away from the Lord in his soul. And I think that best describes his situation where he is overcome by a stupor that actually allows him to sleep through this chaotic storm because his, he's beginning to shut down on the inside likely feeling this overwhelming sense of guilt, likely suffering under debilitating depression, likely knowing full well that his life will be required of him if there is to be any justice in the universe because he is running away full steam from what God has told him to do. So depressed, disgruntled, and disillusioned in his retreated stupor, he has fallen asleep in the hull of this boat. And he has to be wake, woken up by pagans. The pagans had sacrificed everything they knew to sacrifice, thrown a bunch of junk 
off the deck trying to save themselves and cried out in futility to their, uh, their assortment of gods. And then they finally go down and they, what is going on? With, what is your problem? Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship. He was fast asleep. The captain came and said, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Maybe the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It is the pagan that had to issue a wake-up call to the prophet of God to actually do something for him, to intercede on his behalf. What gives? What's the problem here? Maybe you know something that we don't. Say something. Do something. These Gentiles, pagans on this ship, they're ready to hear the gospel under interesting circumstances from an individual who probably felt at that time the least qualified to deliver it again, though. It was the word of the Lord. It wasn't Jonah. Jonah was weak, but God's word never fails. This leads us to our final point this morning, introductory features of the book of Jonah. We've considered the word of the Lord, the weakness of Jonah, finally, the waters of correction. It was the Lord who had stirred up these, in his sovereignty, these seas. He is, in fact, the sovereign over the seas. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the uh, ship threatened to break up. Um, I don't know if you made the connection, put two and two together, but this morning, uh, Joel read from Psalm 48. And if this psalm was written before Jonah uh, wrote, I suspect it was, he would have been familiar with it, presumably, and should have known the foolishness of fleeing to Tarshish. Look at the juxtaposition. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, where in the city of our God, in the mount, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation is this place. It's the joy of the whole earth. This is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And so this illustrates a fixed place of God's rule and reign, where the conditions of his favor are met, as we've often mentioned. So as people dwell in safety, in salvation, and security. But against this, the author continues. He says, Behold, the kings assembled against Mount Zion. They came together. It says, um, or the kings assembled. They came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took flight. Trembling took hold of them there. So the heart that didn't appreciate what Mount Zion represented begins to flee from the presence of the Lord in Psalm 48. With anguish as of a woman in labor. It's as if it's describing Jonah to a T. Notice verse 7, By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen, a city in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. This psalm, it really commemorates in poetic form exactly the circumstance we find in Jonah. In Jonah, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. He left Mount Zion, obedience to the covenant as it were, and then he took off with anguish as of a woman in labor on a ship bound for Tarshish. But what does Psalm 48 say? The Lord demolishes with the east wind the ships of Tarshish. There is no safety there. And so to illustrate Psalm 48 and to bring correction to his servant, this is exactly what happens. The Lord hurled, back to our text, Jonah 1 verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up and the mariners were afraid and they each cried out to his God. The sovereign of the seas has spoken. 
Psalm 18, we won't go there this morning, but the entire psalm illustrates God's sovereignty over the elements of nature. At the time when we were preaching through the Psalms, I remember in God's providence that Hurricane Katrina was fresh in our minds as well as a hurricane that was threatening um, New York City. And as I recall, the waters rose and and threatened to flood, if not flood, uh, in fact, some of the buildings on Wall Street. And I remember preaching from Psalm 18 at the time and pointing out that storm and saying that right there you can see the fingerprints of the sovereign of the seas. Right there in the storms that assail us yet today, God is in control and He has a purpose in every molecule moving to the right or to the left across the expanse of this world. Many times the message to take away is that judgment is due those who do not worship Him in spirit and truth and trust Him as their ark of salvation. Those who were caught flat-footed in the storm at Noah's time would understand the message because they rejected the gospel that Noah preached and the way in the ark that he had prepared, they now would be demolished at sea. They would be drowned in this flood. The sons of Korah sang this song commemorating that Christ the Lord was sovereign over the seas. We see his sovereignty revealed even in the New Testament where he, as a typological Jonah, as it were, is asleep again in the boat, but under totally different conditions, at a storm at sea. And he is in the presence and favor of God more than any human being has ever been. He is God incarnate. He is God and man. And so the disciples wake him up. What are you doing? Just in a similar fashion. And what does he do? With a word, he calms the sea. And then he tells the disciples, basically, shame on you for not trusting God's sovereignty over creation. God is sovereign over creation, and sometimes he uses it to teach his servants a lesson. Other times he uses it to bring the lost to repentance, to illustrate our great frailty. The sea becomes a metaphor all through scriptures that describes the fate of those who are helpless. But those who are in the ark of God's protection, those who have with them as passenger in their vessel Christ himself, they know that no sea is beyond his control. If there's a storm, he has a purpose. If he speaks, he calms it in an instant. The waters of correction are waving and and storming around Jonah. It creates this spiritual panic among the sailors. They're afraid and they each cry out to their God and they hurl cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So you see the desperate measures that the pagans are taking because they fear for their very lives. It throws them into this sort of spiritual panic. They're making frantic prayers. They're throwing their possessions overboard. They're desperate for salvation. It's interesting because later in the same text, the preaching of the word of God inspires the same response in Nineveh. You know, sometimes I've asked myself the question, what kind of catastrophe is going to take a nuclear bomb in 10 cities in America for us to wake up? You know, Jonah 1, 1 through 6, there's a wake-up call. It's the title of our message. Lord, what will it take to wake us up? Well, sometimes a storm is commissioned as a wake-up call. But normally, it's the preached word of God. 
It's the word of God proclaimed through the life lived of faithful believers and the faithful proclamation of those who do not shrink back from its precepts. And the power of the storm, as is evidenced here, driving the mariners, if for desperately to reach out for salvation, that a greater power still was evident when the entire city of Nineveh quaked and shook before the word of God proclaimed. Finally, the waters of correction illustrate God's sovereignty over the seas. It incites a spiritual panic in the mariners, the sailors. And then this passage closes, or it goes on, we'll cover more of this in our next message in Jonah. Uh, And what we find is that this circumstance has provided Jonah with a congregation, a congregation to hear the word. They said to one another, let us each cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come. When the lot fell on Jonah, it says later, verse 9, he confessed, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? And so they recognized that this God was to be feared. He was responsible for the storm And Jonah was responsible for this because of his disobedience. After God eventually calms the seas upon the sacrifice of Jonah, as it were, in verse 16, it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So there was a revival on that ship that day. And in God's providence, he used the rebellion of his servant to draw to himself the sailors on this vessel who feared the Lord and worship the one true God. Jonah, the least likely preacher under these circumstances, had a congregation in this crisis. And what did he preach to them? Well, the message of Jonah is, remember, salvation belongs to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, our country is careening into chaos by many measures. Things are in a state of upheaval. When we look across the landscape of our culture, No one knows right from wrong, it would seem, anymore. And the old mooring posts and points of reference and the ways that were well-trodden and proven are being abandoned for the rebelliousness. And it seems, as it was in the days of Judges, that we live in a time where almost everyone is just doing what is right in their own eyes. These times in history, such as ours, were marked by those words at the end of Judges. There was no king in Israel And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We've rejected King Jesus by many measures in this land. Just to name one, we're responsible for the death of the innocents to the tune of millions, millions upon millions, through the atrocious, legally, quote-unquote, sanctioned practice of abortion, taking place in places that are ostensibly there to heal the body. They're used to kill children. This is just one example that I often reference because it strikes at the heart of the sinfulness that we entertain as a society in this nation that illustrates there is no king in America and everyone is just doing, virtually everyone, doing what is right in their own eyes. Under these conditions, it can create a great crisis. Where are the foundations? What is truth? What is a family? Where can I find security? 
Where's their hope? How can I get health care? Where's my retirement to be found? Who will keep us safe? What is justice? Who holds tomorrow? What is the foundation of a nation anyway? How can I trust it when it's run by such clowns? These are the questions that are rising to the surface, creating in many a desperate, helpless situation, crying out for salvation. Will the next president save them? Is a political party their answer? Nope. That's just a boat heading 2,500 miles in the direction of Tarshish. Zion is the answer. That is, having your life in reconciliation with Almighty God because you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Jonah to come, whose body was thrown over sea that you might, into the sea as it were, in his death, that you might be saved. You and every pagan brother and sister next to you on this ship. That's what it's like in America today. In this crisis, we will have congregations, people who ask these kind of questions. Are you ready to give the answer, saint? Are you ready to provide a reason for the hope within you? Are you ready with a message of unchanging salvation in Jesus Christ? We may live in Nineveh, but the word of God can bring this city to its knees. Let us close in prayer. O oh Lord, we thank you for the power of God that is evident to us in this record of history, even more so in the coming of Christ our Lord and in the message of the early apostles through his enabling power at the Great Commission and his indwelling spirit turning the world upside down. Lord, I pray that herein we would find a refuge to encourage us in a day where we are called to preach to the pagan, to the ungodly, that there is hope in Christ alone. Encourage and exhort us, we pray, in our own weakness, as we read of your servant Jonah, upon whom you shed your grace and mercy. Encourage us, Lord, in our own society, as we see how you poured out your loving kindness to a nation such as Nineveh, a city such as Nineveh. Thank you, Lord, for these encouraging words. May they be written upon our soul, giving us faith, in the day of darkness, to shine as lights for Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in His name we pray. Amen.